This is a test. This station is conducting a test of the emergency broadcasting system. This is only a test. Come on with it. Hey, y'all, this is Chigger Tiki. Welcome to the podcast. For this episode, I'm going to invite you to come back with me 60 years to the fall of 1962. I've just turned eight years old, just started third grade. Naturally, I'm oblivious to world politics. That is, until October, when the world would come crashing into my personal space. In October 1962, we kids noticed that our parents, teachers, grandparents, suddenly began to turn tense and humorless. Actually, they seemed frightened. And this freaked us out. And as we freaked out, our parents began to feed us little bits of information. Turns out that just off the coast of Florida, in a place called Cuba, was a man named Fidel Castro, who was aiming bombs at us. Castro. Even at my tender age, I wasn't completely in the dark about him. I'd heard his name on the news and had an image of him in my mind. Castro was an ape man. I knew this because on the news they called him a communist gorilla. But I knew nothing of the bombs he aimed at us until shortly afterwards when they rolled the clickety 16-millimeter projector into our classroom. We were shown a film by the Civil Defense Department. It taught us about the atomic bomb. It said this was the most powerful and destructive weapon ever known. And to prove this, the, sh- the film showed an actual nuclear blast. Somehow the filmmakers had set up cameras and trained them on a real barn and farmhouse in a nuclear testing area to show what the atomic bomb could do. And what it could do was send forth a lightning-fast tsunami of flame as hot as the sun, a tsunami that incinerates everything in its path. We watched it turn the barn and farmhouse into absolutely nothing. After this display, the film's announcer told us what we should do in the case of a nuclear attack. Child actors showed us to squat under our little desks, closing our eyes, interlacing our fingers over our heads, and ducking our heads between our knees. At eight years old, we tended to trust adults implicitly, but on this score, my classmates and I shot glances at each other that seemed to ask, Wait, what? How's my little wooden school desk? going to stop a wall of flame that a barn and farmhouse can't. It's not surprising that 10 or 15 years later, in our college years, it was a wag from our generation who fashioned a spoof civil defense poster outlining the steps to take during a nuclear attack. As I recall, the last three were, number eight, place your hands over your head, Number nine, duck your head between your knees. And number ten, 
kiss your ass goodbye. But back in 1962, despite our doubts, we dutifully followed the drill instructions. Then a couple of days later, things got even weirder. Before I explain, let's remember that many times in life, especially when you're a kid, stuff happens you don't understand in that moment. It's only in hindsight that you figure out what just happened. This incident was like that. I didn't fully comprehend it at the time. But today I know that some well-meaning grown-ups in positions of authority figured that if Castro launched his missiles, then from the time the missile was detected until the time it struck our hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, well, that would be about 20 minutes. And so the grown-ups figured it would be wise to know which kids could and which could not get home before the atomic bomb went off. To answer this question, here's what happened. Teachers would pin to each student a little square of paper on which was printed the student's name and the time of 10 a.m. I remember the rest like this. That morning, at about 9.30 or so, my teacher, Mrs. White, called each of us students one by one to her desk and pinned the paper squares on us. When we'd all been pinned, Mrs. White told us that at 10 o'clock, we would hear a civil defense siren. At that moment, we would calmly get up and walk. She emphasized, walk, students, do not run. We should get up, walk out of the classroom, walk out of the school, and walk all the way home. When she finished talking, there were still a few minutes left till 10. And so we sat quietly and fearfully at our desks. And we weren't helped by our sense that Mrs. White, too, was nervous, perhaps even fearful. Somewhere behind me, I heard a child sniffling. Sensing our fear, Mrs. White said, Children, this is only a test, a drill. Nothing bad's going to happen. But her shaky voice and darting eyes didn't help us. She, too, was nervous and scared. I sat at my desk, tingling and thinking, Castro wants to kill me. Why does this gorilla want to kill me and everyone I know? In the distance, somewhere I could hear the drone of a lawnmower, which seemed crazy. Somebody's mowing their lawn? Somebody doesn't know that Castro's trying to kill them? Then I heard the noise. At first a low moan that began to swell higher and louder, the civil defense siren. Then the sound of student desks scraping the floor, as children's voices crying out, Mrs. White raising her voice, Walk! Don't run! Walk! Walk! But we ran like hell crushing at the door and into the hall, pushing and shoving. It's a wonder no one was trampled to death. I pushed, shoved, and pulled my way out of the building and began desperately to look for my first-grade sister, but how to find her in this scrum of 800 kids running in every direction. Almost miraculously, though, 
I saw her standing still against the school building, hands pressed to her ears, eyes shut tight. I ran to her, yanked her arm, and we took off. Our house was about a mile away, and we ran as fast as our spindly little legs could carry us. We ran as if chased by a tsunami of flame. And finally, our sweaty bodies bounded up the steps of our house and into the arms of our mom, who unpinned our paper squares and wrote on each, 10.14 a.m. With six minutes to spare, we had earned the right to be vaporized at home in the arms of mom instead of squatting under a school desk. Yippee. Well, obviously, nuclear war was averted. The Cuban Missile Crisis was brought to a peaceful resolution a few days later, a few days after my sister and I ran home. In the following weeks, I would learn more about what had happened. Castro, the gorilla, was in fact a stooge for Nikita Khrushchev, the premier of the communist Soviet Union. Khrushchev had told Castro to set up and aim the missiles at the United States. The story I was told for many years would cast President John F. Kennedy as the hero of the Cuban Missile Crisis. As the story went, Kennedy stood eye to eye with Khrushchev, and Khrushchev blinked and ordered Castro to remove the missiles. John F. Kennedy had saved us. This, however, would turn out to be a patriotic myth. Real historians eventually taught me that Kennedy himself had lit the fuse on this whole calamity. He had convinced NATO to place missiles in Turkey and aim them at the nearby Soviet Union. His Soviet counterpart, Khrushchev, replied, Well, Mr. Kennedy, too, can play at this game. And he directed his ally, Fidel Castro, in Cuba to aim missiles at the nearby United States. Think about this. As I was sitting in my classroom thinking, Castro is trying to kill me. Somewhere in the Soviet Union, kids in classrooms were thinking, Kennedy's trying to kill me. So what we had here on the worldwide stage was a couple of superpower leaders acting like third-grade boys. One boy had called the other a poo-poo head, and the other responded by calling him a butthole. Then the two of them stormed out to the playground where they faced each other with clenched fists. A great crowd of kids gathered round expectantly. But the two boys, now facing each other, began to realize they weren't very keen on getting hit. So one says to the other, I won't hit you if you promise not to call me a poo-poo head. And the other says, oh yeah? Well, I won't hit you if you promise not to call me a butthole. Then the two boys jam their fist into their short pants pockets and stomp back into the schoolhouse. There's your Cuban Missile Crisis in a nutshell. Only back in 1962, those two boys, Khrushchev and Kennedy, were playing with fire, literally. It occurs to me that the grand stage of world politics has never lacked for little boys facing each other with their fists up. Kennedy and Khrushchev, Reagan and Gorbachev, Biden and Putin, and the beat goes on. And yet, terrifyingly, 
there always waits in the wings the tsunami of flame. On that happy note, I bring this episode to a close. This is a test of the emergency broadcasting system. If this had been an actual emergency, the attention signal you've just heard... If this had been an actual emergency, you could kiss your ass goodbye. Hey, thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to Chigger Ticky on Apple Podcast, or you can find the link at ChiggerTicky.com or by searching Chigger Ticky on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Y'all are wonderful and generous to share your time with me. I hope you'll join me on the next episode when we stick around just a little bit longer in the early 1960s to learn what it was like for this little white boy to experience the civil rights movement while going to a racist white church. That's coming up next episode. Remember, you can send me your thoughts and stories at chiggerticky at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Send me anything you want to say, uh, and I want this to be a conversation. So, thanks so much again for listening. Come on with it. <laughs>